From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello, and welcome back. Last time, I sat down with John Andrasik, singer-songwriter and producer who shared how he continues to channel some of his frustrations through his songwriting, and he most recently did so on the debacle in Afghanistan. We appreciated a chance to talk to him. My guest this week is also working to help change the minds of people across the country through her study and reporting on the foster care system. I, too, try to live with gratitude and to push for better by paying it forward, especially when it comes to mentoring. I feel that's my calling right now. And it is gratifying to do so here in America, where being an educated American woman means you're already so far ahead in life. You have a head start that most women around the globe could never imagine. So what will you do? It's exciting to imagine. Naomi Schaefer Riley is an author and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on child welfare and foster care issues. Specifically, her work analyzes the role of faith-based, civic, and community organizations in changing the foster care and adoption services landscape. Her book is called No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives. Naomi, thank you for joining me. This is an issue I know you have followed for quite a long time. How did you first get interested and knowledgeable about the issue of foster care? There are a couple different ways that I sort of got into this, Dana. The first was a few years ago, I wrote a book about American Indians. Those it was so are- good. That book was <laughs> thank fantastic. You so thank you so much. But unfortunately, tragically, those communities have some of the worst child welfare outcomes in the country. The rates of child abuse and neglect are twice the national average, and they have a foster care system system that is just a mess. And it got me to thinking, what does the rest of the system look like? Um, I spent some time, as you know, as a New York Post columnist. And there I had the opportunity to write about some of the high profile child fatalities that occur in the city. And it really just got me to thinking, like, nobody is really kind of looking in depth at what's happening to these children there. They're suffering uh, needlessly, I think, what I found. And I just really wanted to spend a lot more time on it. What is your main takeaway out of this book? I think the main takeaway is that our child welfare system really seems to revolve around the needs and desires and sensibilities of adults instead of the best interests of children. And I don't understand how we've gotten things so backwards, but that's where things stand right now. In fact, I listened to a podcast that you did, I think with AEI, and I was really struck by that because you said sometimes you'll have a situation and a child is then taken away from the parent or separated from the parent and that all of our goals seem to be how to get the child back with the parent when that might not actually be the best for the kid. Yeah. I compare this to the way we treat victims of domestic violence. Can you imagine if police showed up after a woman had been battered by her boyfriend or husband? And the first or second question they asked is, how can we get you guys back together? Because that's the question we ask with children who've been abused or severely neglected. I also thought it was interesting that you talked about the people who become foster parents, that they're not out to earn money or game the system, but a lot of them do it because they have big hearts and they care. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see a lot of the best, most qualified people in the foster 
aftercare world coming out of, not surprisingly, churches and faith-based communities. It's really hard work. And I joke with people that, you know, if you don't think God is telling you to do it, you might you might not get into this work. And you've really seen, just interestingly, and I've been so privileged to travel to some of these communities, a revolution in the world of foster care uh, in faith-based communities in recent years. They figured out that putting up a picture of a child on the nightly news is not the most effective way to recruit foster parents. And so now you have pastors who go tell their congregations, there are six kids in our zip code tonight who need homes. And that's a much more immediate message and gets people to volunteer. And the second thing they've done is they've really trained people a lot better. You know, the state training for these positions, you know, includes a lot of things like how many fire extinguishers you need to have in your house and all of these rules, but it doesn't give parents the tools that they need uh, to handle kids who've been severely traumatized. And so many of these faith-based communities have added an entire curricula on how to deal with traumatized children. And the final thing they've done, which is so important, is supporting foster families. About half of foster families quit within the first year that they're doing it because it's such hard work and they feel like they're doing it in a vacuum. And so these religious communities have really signed up people to support, whether that's doing respite care, you know, if the couple needs a night out, you know, or whether that's putting together furniture if you have foster kids being dropped off at your house or just, you know, being there and praying for you. And I think that that creates a whole community that's doing foster care rather than just one couple. I have a very good friend. I'll just use her first name. Ashley uh, lives in California, worked with me uh, during the Bush administration. And I'm just so touched by this story. And I'm sure that you've probably heard things like this. I'll share it. And then maybe you can tell me a little bit more about this part of it. She has two children of her own. She and her husband do. And her siblings have all become foster parents over the years. And eventually she decided that they would try as well. And I believe it was in January of 2020, just before the pandemic, immediately after they had um, offered to sign up, they were asked to take care of a newborn baby. Uh, the mother was, a, I believe, unfortunately, a drug addict, unable to take care of the baby. So that was 2020. So maybe it, maybe it was just maybe a lot, slightly earlier than that. Excuse me for getting the dates wrong. Just I just saw a picture of him, and I think he's a, just a little over two years old now. And it took quite a while in the courts, but they decided to adopt him. And mm-hmm. that process to me has always been very interesting. Of um, It was difficult, I understand, for one of the biological mothers, I believe, brothers or uncles to let go and and allow for the adoption to take place. But now that it has, and then I saw this picture of this little boy with 19 new cousins. And then, of course, his um, brother and sister that are in the nuclear family there. And I was just so touched by that because it does take a lot. Raising children is such an important part of life and society, and it's not easy. You know that. But then to go ahead and then take on somebody else's child and make him your own, that really is so special. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting story. And in many ways, it's it's typical, um, particularly the aspect of the story that involves substance abuse. Unfortunately, the child welfare crisis in this country is driven by our drug abuse crisis. Most of the foster parents I talk to, and if you talk to experts, they will say it is almost hard to think of a case uh, where a child's been removed from a home that hasn't involved substance abuse on some level. And I think we don't talk enough about what the dangers are, you know, not, not to consenting adults of substance abuse, but to children. It's, it's it's really hard to take care of, especially a young child, even when you're completely sober. I mean, infants, of course, require mm-hmm. constant attention. And then children get to that stage where they're mobile, but totally irrational, you know, trying to touch hot stoves and run out the front door and swallow your Legos and mm-hmm. whatever it is. It, it's really hard work and it requires constant attention or something very bad could happen. And so a lot of times we're removing kids from homes for that reason, but they, they go back and forth. And this is one of the really hard parts about 
being a foster parent, but also one of the things that I think we're doing a disservice to kids with. It's a hard question to ask. How many chances should a parent get? But right now, the way our system works is we take a child out, you know, in which we think they're in danger. Um, we offer the parents all sorts of services, substance abuse, counseling, uh, anger management, parenting classes. And then we say, you know, in a few months, oh, okay, now you can have the kid back. You've completed those things. And then it happens again and again and again. We know, you know, addiction is a very hard thing to kick. And and obviously we should feel sorry for these people and give them, you know, many, uh, as many services as they need to help them deal with their problem. But the question is, how long should a child have to wait? And that, especially when the children are young, is a really, it's a hard question to ask, but we have to keep in mind how much of brain development is occurring during infancy and, you know, zero to three, you know, if you have not formed a secure attachment with adults, if you don't unconsciously or subconsciously understand that there is an adult who is going to take care of your needs, your physical needs, your emotional needs, who's going to be there when you cry out, that has severe impact later on in life. And so one of the things I think we need to think about with the child welfare system is how do we get into a situation where we're thinking about the timelines of kids and we're making decisions, especially for young kids in a, in a faster, more efficient way, because, you know, they, they need us and they need a secure attachment to an adult. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. Is there a federal government role here? Well, the most of the federal government's role is financial. The federal government provides about half of the funding for foster care to the states. And there are some really important laws that the federal government has passed to help protect kids in foster care. The first one was called the Adoption Safe Families Act, which was passed in the 1990s. You know, bipartisan coalition who felt that kids were languishing in foster care for too long. And they said, uh, if a child has been in foster care for 15 of the past 22 months, then states need to move to sever parental rights because that's just foster care is supposed to be temporary. And unfortunately, that law is flouted everywhere. I mean, the average amount of time that a child spends in foster care in the United States now is 20 months. In some states like New York, it's 30 months. And then there's a significant percentage of kids for which it's upwards of three or four years. Mm. So that temporary situation becomes a kind of permanent holding pattern for these kids. And it's all because we want to give the adults another chance. The other important piece of federal legislation that was passed and is also, you know, people are trying to overturn or just ignore it right now, is called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act. And it bars states from discriminating on the basis of race when placing kids in foster care or out of foster care into adoption. And the idea, again, bipartisan coalition in the 90s felt that Black children in particular were not being placed in safe, loving families. They were just being allowed to languish in foster care because groups like the National Association of Black Social Workers opposed transracial adoption. They thought it was better for kids to be in foster care or in orphanages, frankly, than to be with a white family. And that, unfortunately, that attitude is coming back now in our heated is kind it of racialized. Really? It absolutely is. You had, have had even major adoption agencies like Bethany Christian Services, their vice president recently said adopting a black family, a black child into a white family can cause that child irreparable harm now. And so it goes on both kind of in the courtroom where people explicitly talk about the fact that the skin color does not match, you know, the child and the, and the potential parents. Um, and it goes on kind of in whispered tones, too. You have caseworkers who will just remove a child and say, you know, under their breath, oh, they didn't know the proper way to care for black hair or something like that. And um, and it's really unfortunate because the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act allowed tens of thousands more black children to be adopted in the last 25 years. And we're going to go backwards if these people have their way. Wow, I didn't realize that. I 
also noticed that, of course, when I worked in the Bush administration, one of the things that President Bush wanted to do was allow faith-based providers to have access to federal funds since they were doing so much of the good work. Obama stripped that out. I think Trump tried to put some of it back. And now I see, again, in the human infrastructure bill that the Biden administration wants to pass, one of the things that they would do, at least for daycare providers, is to block faith-based providers from being able to access any of the money. Yeah. Um, well, for those of your listeners who followed the case, um, the Fulton v. Philadelphia case that went to the Supreme Court last spring, you know, this is a really important issue because, frankly, you know, the people who are doing most of the heavy lifting in the world of foster care are coming from churches and other faith-based organizations. And the idea that we are going to drive these people out because we don't agree with the way that they're placing kids. I mean, you know, these are these are organizations like Catholic Charities that says, you know, we will place kids, you know, in homes with traditional family structures. And so there are a lot of LGBT groups that said, you know, this is unacceptable. Um, you're discriminating against us. Now, mind you, none of the people came forward and said, I couldn't find an agency to work with, or I was, I was turned away by every agency. They just want Catholic Charities or some other religious group to sort of accommodate their desires. Now, my attitude about this all along has been let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, we should have as many agencies as possible doing this work, placing kids in as many safe, stable, loving homes as we can find. And if one agency wants to specialize in placing with traditional Catholic families and another agency wants to place with lesbian couples, like I think go for it because we have so many kids in foster care who need homes and only so many agencies and families that are doing this work. I mean, the, the question is, what rights do the kids have here? You know, they they should have a right to a safe, stable, loving home. It's not just about the feelings of the adults involved again. Absolutely. So who would you most like to have read your book and be moved or affected by it? Well, there are probably a couple of different audiences. I really do think that the system could benefit from having, you know, more American middle class families not only do foster care, but support foster care and and get keep an eye on what is going on in the system. One of the things that I talk to people about is the work of becoming a court appointed special advocate, a CASA volunteer. Those are people who volunteer a few hours a week to get to know a child who's in the foster care system and then represent that child's interests to a judge in family court. I think it's important not only in terms of getting the child's voice heard, but also having some sense that somebody is really keeping an eye on what is going on in these courts. A lot of foster families say to me that these courts feel like they're kangaroo courts, like that laws are just being flouted left and right, and they don't understand what's going on. So having more kind of responsible citizens, you know, have touch with the system and be understanding what's going on would be important. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I want legislators to read this book because I think that they don't know what's going on in their child welfare agencies. I mean, especially frankly, conservative legislators. I don't think people on the right have been at the table enough with this issue. I think there's been a lot of kind of, you know, when I first started talking about this issue, I asked a lot of my friends on the right, you know, what is the broken windows solution to child welfare? Like, Mm. what is the equivalent of the way we reformed, you know, police and, and fixed crime in major cities like New York? What is the equivalent for the child welfare system? And a lot of people shrugged and said, you know, look, this is the breakdown of the American family. What do you expect? And I think that answer is true and yet totally insufficient. I mean, there are 440,000 kids in foster care right now. We can't rewind their lives and say, you know, you should have grown up in a stable home. Like, no kidding. But what are we going to do about these kids now? And so I want people on the right to go back to the table and say, no, there's a lot we can do to fix this. And we should really be representing the child's best interest, not just the adults. In your research, did you find any area of the country or organization that you think is doing a really 
really great job? I think there are a lot of organizations, again, these faith-based organizations, groups in Colorado, like Project 127, or groups in Arkansas, like The Call. You know, there's a there's a group in California called Advocates, which is trying to represent the voices of foster families and caregivers in the court system. So I think that there are a lot of kind of civil society solutions that are working at this problem. But in terms of the child welfare agencies themselves, you know, a lot of them really have just kind of been drinking from the same trough. They all, you know, think the same way, you know, family reunification, family preservation is always the name of the game. You know, even when it seems like it could be a little iffy putting a child back in that situation, they're all, you know, yammering on about disparate racial impact, you know, without, by the way, ever telling you that Black children are at a much higher risk for maltreatment. I mean, Black children in this country are three times as likely to die from child maltreatment as their white peers. So the question is, where is the need? Not, you know, do we look at our spreadsheet and see that we have too many Black children in foster care? But that's all they want to talk about now. And so I think if you look around the country, you just get state after state that has bought into this narrative. A lot of them are getting money from large liberal foundations like the Casey Foundation. And that money sort of ends up, you know, keeping all these groups on the same message, unfortunately. Right. Uh, You have children of your own. How do you manage your work-life balance? I love that. Most of the time when I I always ask that question on this podcast and because I'm searching for it and everybody that I mentor is looking for the perfect answer. Of course, we know there is no perfect answer, but sometimes people have ideas or ways to give us different means by thinking about how we manage. Well, I I have the privilege, as probably many more people did this year, of, of having worked from home for a long time. I probably purposely chose a profession in which I knew I would have some flexibility, not just in terms of the hours, but in terms of being able to go in and out of it at different points and, you know, take on more and less work depending on where I was in my life. You know, and I think, you know, just, you know, having a, the right husband also helps. It too. does. It does. Um, yeah. um, you know, also having, you know, somebody also who has a, a somewhat flexible schedule and, and uh, you know, being on the same page about the, the importance of, you know, our kids' lives and family. Well, congratulations on the book. What you do is so important. And I appreciate your dedication to this topic, to the kids that you care about and to the parents, uh, the foster parents included, um, who are all trying to make things work as best they can, but they really need the system to improve so that they can do what they need to do. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan. Naomi Riley, thank you. I've followed Naomi's work for many years, and as you could tell, I was quite impressed with all that she has done. And I feel like this is an issue that we don't talk about enough. So I was very glad to have a conversation with Naomi Schaefer Riley. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.